At its height, the British Empire, the largest in world history, contained an area of some 13.7 million square miles, or 35.5 million square kilometers, causing George McCartney, the then governor of Madras, now Chennai, India, to proclaim in 1773, after Britain's victory in the Seven Years' War against the French, that the sun never sets upon it. Indeed, it stretched from its home base of operations in the British Isles to Africa, scattered parts of the Mediterranean, into Asia, down into Australia, and even across the North American continent. This accounts for the fact that English remains one of the most widely spoken languages on Earth. But as with every great culture and people on this planet, it had to start someplace, and that someplace is usually quite humble. For the British, it doesn't get humbler than the subject of today's episode. About 77 miles, 124 kilometers southwest of London, is an open grassy plain known as Salisbury Plain. This isn't all that unusual, as this environment makes up much of the landscape of southern England, but driving along the nearby road or walking through the grass itself will command your attention to a set of monolithic standing stones that dominate the horizon. From a distance, their placement may seem haphazard, but closer inspection makes one realize that their location and arrangement are, in fact, intentional. I'm referring, of course, to what's considered to be the most famous prehistoric monument in the world, Stonehenge. For centuries it has remained an important, albeit curious, site for the various peoples of Britain, with origin stories ranging from the Celtic Druids of the pre-Christian era to the legend of King Arthur and the sorcerer Merlin. But while each of these tales is thrilling and has attempted to shed light on Stonehenge's creation, the questions remain. Who exactly built this magnificent structure? What purpose or purposes did it serve? And exactly how long has it been standing? I'm Chester Sakamoto, your host, and welcome back to the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. The earliest evidence of human habitation in what's now Britain dates back to around 800,000 BC. At that time, the world was steeped in what's now referred to as the Ice Age. With much of the planet's water contained within vast ice sheets that covered most of the northern hemisphere, Britain was connected to continental Europe via a land bridge that has since submerged, making it possible for various prehistoric European peoples to roam freely between the two landmasses. For millennia, eons even, the humans who called this primordial Britain home traveled back and forth between their ancestral stomping grounds and the continent itself, in accordance with the seasons. As with most populations throughout the world at the time, they led a hunter-gatherer lifestyle, in which they'd hunt the various megafauna that populated Europe in those days. Mammoths, woolly rhinos, and rather large species of wild cattle called aurochs. They were also semi-nomadic, following the big game upon which they relied for food, clothing, and shelter, and never staying in one place for very long. But everything changed in around 8000 BC, when the aforementioned Ice Age came to an end. As sea levels gradually rose due to the melting of those selfsame massive ice sheets that covered the northern hemisphere, Britain was cut off from the rest of Europe, causing the people who lived there to be isolated from the mainland. Thus they developed their own unique cultures and customs that grew and developed independently from those of their neighbors on the continent. From out of the obscurity of this hazy period of history rose the people who would be responsible for the creation of Stonehenge. I'd like to take this opportunity to enter a caveat of sorts before we continue. To this day, no one knows for certain which specific culture or people built Stonehenge. As there were no written records in this part of the world at the time, all we have to rely upon is the archaeological evidence that has been, and continues to be, unearthed at the site. 
There are many theories circulating at present, but none are conclusive. It's in our very nature to want to have definitive answers to questions, but we simply just don't know enough about these ancient builders to draw any concrete conclusions. With that in mind, let's move on. Around the time the first humans arrived in what's now southern England, much of the region's landscape was heavily wooded. Dense forests covered the rolling terrain beneath a canopy of green, the one exception being the vicinity where Stonehenge would eventually rise. It's for this reason, archaeologists believe, that this particular stretch of land became a sacred site for these ancient people, with the earliest evidence of religious practices and ritualistic burials dating back to around 8000 BC, right at the end of the Ice Age. This is confirmed by the first known structures erected at the site. Wooden totem pole-like posts made of pine and conjectured to be either grave markers for the dead, or icons depicting ancestors, the spirits of the deceased, or even deities. However, it's unclear whether Stonehenge's significance was at all related to these earlier monuments. They were, however, aligned in an east-west fashion, indicating religious significance likely with regards to the movements of the sun. Over the ensuing 5,000 years, the site continued to be used by various peoples, who added their own touches to what was already there. By around 3500 BC, a series of earthworks, common in northern Europe during the period known as the Neolithic, or New Stone Age, had been dug, including an enclosure referred to as Robin Hood's Bowl, about two and a half miles, or four kilometers, northwest of Stonehenge. Closer still, at a mere 2,300 feet, 700 meters from the site, is the Stonehenge Cursus, which measures 1.9 miles, 3 kilometers in length, and some 490 feet, 150 meters wide. Upon first glance, especially from above, the placement of this monument may seem to be haphazard, but geologists have noted that it crosses, yet again in an east-west fashion, a now dry river valley that was once prone to seasonal flooding, once more indicating ritualistic practices that revolved around the seasons. Such evidence leads archaeologists to believe that these early settlers were farmers who, after clearing the area of some of its trees to develop the land to make it more inhabitable, built such monuments in which to gauge weather patterns and or ask the deities for bountiful harvests. Other early structures include the famed heel stone, a massive natural stone untouched by chisels or carving tools from which these early inhabitants viewed the sunrise during the summer solstice, as well as the North Barrow, a large circular formation some 33 feet or 10 meters in diameter, with a mound at its center, whose exact purpose remains unknown. It wasn't until around 3100 BC that the construction of Stonehenge as we know it began. It all started with a circular bank and ditch enclosure, both of which were made of chalk, which is quite plentiful in the region and dates back to the late Cretaceous period, a time when southern England was underwater. The circle measures about 360 feet, 110 meters in diameter, with a large entrance on its northeastern side and a smaller one on its southern side. The ground upon which it stands slopes slightly, the significance of which will be explained later. Upon its completion, its builders lined the bottom of the aforementioned ditch with deer and oxen bones, along with the flint tools they'd used in its construction. Said ditch was dug in sections that ultimately amounted to one continuous work. The chalk that was excavated for the undertaking was used to form the bank, where it was piled up into a slightly raised mound that almost completely encircled the ditch. Along the outer edge of the enclosed space is a circle comprised of 56 pits, each of which measures 3.3 feet, or 1 meter, in diameter. Known as the Aubrey Holes, after a 17th century English historian named John Aubrey, who's credited with their discovery, they are believed to have contained bluestone posts, and are, at this time, the earliest known stone structures at the site, the previous date of which was thought to have been some 500 years later. There's considerable evidence to suggest that this monument, now referred to as Stonehenge I for the first phase of its development, was used as a sacred burial site. 
In 2013, British archaeologist Mike Parker Pearson led an excavation at Stonehenge that revealed something startling, yet truly remarkable. Some 50,000 bone fragments from cremated individuals were discovered in the aforementioned Aubrey's holes. Chemical and physical analyses revealed that the remains belonged to an almost equal balance of men and women, and even included some children. The blue stones that originally encircled this first incarnation of Stonehenge were likely grave markers for the deceased, and are believed to have been hoisted from as far afield as Wales, some 145 and a half miles, 234 kilometers away. Mind you, this was no easy task, especially when taking into consideration that the wheel wouldn't even be invented in Britain until around 1300 BC. How they transported such stones to the site remains a mystery, though logs from felled trees are one generally accepted theory. For about three or four hundred years, Stonehenge I was a sacred site for the ancient peoples of southern England, one they'd use frequently to ritualistically bury their dead. But sometime after 3100 BC, probably around 2900 BC, this first face structure was dismantled. In its place, a timber structure was raised within the enclosure, with added timber posts placed at the northeastern entrance of the site. In addition, a parallel line of timber posts ran into the interior of the structure from the southern entrance. It was during this phase of construction, known as Stonehenge II, that the site became fully dedicated to funerary rites and burials. Several more cremated remains were placed within the ditch that encircled the monument, with a higher concentration buried in the site's eastern half, indicating a connection between rebirth and the rising of the sun. It was during this phase that archaeologists now know, through the discovery and dating of grooved ware pottery uncovered at the site, that the date of Stonehenge II's completion was somewhere between 2800 BC and 2600 BC. But though these phases were integral to the development of Stonehenge, we still haven't arrived at the monument we know and love today. Work wouldn't begin on that structure until about 2600 BC, when these ancient builders abandoned timber posts in favor of stone ones. The architects then broke ground on Stonehenge III, these numbers are starting to sound a lot like the Fast and Furious franchise, by digging two concentric rows of holes in the direct center of the site. These holes were likely filled with bluestone, and archaeologists continue to debate the origin of these dolerite megaliths. Some say they were transported overland from the Prezeli Hills in present-day Pembrokeshire in Wales, a mind-blowing 150 miles or 240 kilometers away. Still others believe that the stones had been a lot closer to the site, having been deposited via glacier to the area sometime during the Ice Age. Thorough research has opted in favor of the former theory, however, as evidence of early bluestone quarrying in Wales corresponds to that which is found at Stonehenge. It was during this phase that the northeastern entrance to the site was widened, so as to accommodate the exact direction of both the summer solstice sunrise and winter solstice sunset. The heel stone we discussed briefly earlier is believed to have been installed as part of Stonehenge III, and is also located near the northeastern entrance. It acted, according to historians, as a sort of marker above which the sunrises and sunsets of the solstices would align. Two or three larger stones, much like the heel stone, were located just within the northeastern entrance, but only one, known as the Slaughter Stone, now remains. Sometime during Phase 3, the now iconic Sarsen stones, those large grey sandstone posts and lintels that encircle the site today, were erected. Luckily for the builders, these didn't come from as far away as their bluestone predecessors. Instead, they were quarried at a place just 16 miles, 26 kilometers away to the north, in what's now Westwood's Wiltshire. First, these massive stone blocks, each of which was 13 feet, 4.1 meters high, and 6.1 feet, 2.1 meters wide, with an average weight of 25 tons, were fitted with mortise 
knees and tenon joints at their tops. Think of the mechanisms that connect and hold tinker toys or Legos together. Then, lintels of the same stone were placed atop these joints and linked together via tongue and groove joints, the like of which resemble the pieces of a giant 3D puzzle. The three stones, known as trilithons, combined to make portals, 30 in all, which perfectly aligned with the sun, moon, and other celestial entities depending upon the time of year. These trilithons formed the outer circle of the structure, with a horseshoe-shaped arrangement whose opening faced northeast, standing within it. By around 2400 BC, Stonehenge had all the hallmarks we associate with it today. Its final phase was complete. But what exactly was the purpose of this magnificent monument? You'll recall that I mentioned earlier that the site was built on slightly raised ground. 19th and 20th century excavations revealed the reason for this. Archaeologists and historians noticed that, when peering through some of the stone portals, depending upon the time of day or year, the sun could be viewed through their exact centers. It's believed that the summer and winter solstices, as well as the vernal and autumnal equinoxes, were of particular importance to the ancient people who built this particular incarnation of Stonehenge, with the structure as a whole serving as a giant solar calendar, one that measured out an entire year with an accuracy similar to the calendrical system used in ancient Egypt, which, much like the Gregorian calendar we use today, counted a total of 365.25 daily rotations around the sun. As Stonehenge was a site that was, more or less, in continuous use from the Bronze Age onward, it was never buried or lost, but instead dominated the landscape in southern England, a curious remnant of a distant and primordial time. While the heavily wooded areas of the region eventually gave way to the grassy plain and its ancient builders moved on to proverbial greener pastures, it continued to inspire and serve as both a mysterious and mythic place well into antiquity and even the pre-Christian and early Christian eras. Several Roman artifacts unearthed at the site have led archaeologists to believe that the Romans frequently visited Stonehenge throughout the time of their rule over Britain. The island's Celtic inhabitants also saw it as a place of mysticism and magic, with their priests, known as druids, conducting religious ceremonies and rituals from within its circular formation. The famed legend of King Arthur even references Stonehenge in an escapade involving the powerful sorcerer Merlin, who uses a combination of magic as well as the aid of a race of giants to help lift the heavy stones into place. In short, it has become intrinsically linked with the British cultural identity, and remains an emblem of the island's long and rich history. Today, Stonehenge draws up to 800,000 visitors, both domestic and foreign, annually. It's a site that continues to captivate and tantalize the imagination, and is a testament to the ingenuity of the peoples of Britain's prehistoric past. Perhaps the biggest draws, however, are the summer and winter solstices, in which people gather within and around the still-standing and fallen stones to marvel at the sunlight that can be seen perfectly through some of the trilithons. It's a true marvel of ancient engineering, one that connects us to the obscurity of our earliest days on this planet. We may never know who exactly built it, but it has, in many ways, cemented its ancient builders within the annals of history and will immortalize them so long as humanity endures. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed this guided tour of Stonehenge. Have you ever been to the ancient site in Britain? If you have, let me know in the comments section of my latest Instagram post. Just give me a follow at History Loves Company. That's History underscore Loves underscore Company. Do you enjoy history and wish to receive weekly updates in your inbox? If so, please consider becoming a monthly supporter of this podcast. Just visit anchor.fm slash historylovescompany and click the support button, which will redirect you to three monthly support plans that fit your budget or monetary needs. Listening and sharing help in big ways as well, so please do so wherever you get your podcasts. Tune in next week for another enthralling episode of the History Loves Company podcast, because history is shaped by all of us. This is Chester Sakamoto signing off. See you next time.